0: When I was in college and in quite a bit better shape, Bill, than I am now, I played lacrosse. And I don't know, uh, lacrosse is not as popular here on the West Coast, certainly, as it is uh, back in the Northeast, but it's a, uh, I think it's a delightful sport. But anyway, it's a contact sport. And uh, that always appealed to me. But anyway, uh, like contact sports, I think probably like all contact sports, before we would go out to play a particular game, the coach would, of course, gather us all around and, and give us a pep talk. And it was designed to, you know, get us really pumped up and ready to go out and play. And so I can remember a particular game where he gathered us all around and he did a really masterful job of, of inciting us um, to go out there and really tear them up. You know, we were ready to, to go out there and just turn those other guys into mush. And so out we went with that, that confidence that we were going to really take this team apart, but there was a problem, and the problem was that the other team was uh, far better conditioned physically than we were. And so it didn't take very long before there was chewing being done, but we were the chewies and not the chewers. <laughs> and uh, we were really rather miserably defeated on that particular afternoon. Sometimes you know I thought back on those kinds of things, and sometimes I think that Christian life can be like that. We come together on a Sunday morning, and um, we're surrounded here by uh, like-minded people. We uh, sing, you know, inspiring music together. We listen to good Bible teaching. We. Develop this confidence that we are really walking with Jesus Christ. And and then we we leave here sort of pumped up and ready to go. And then Monday morning comes around, right? And the daily grind and pressure of the world begins to, to squeeze us. And what we find is that very quickly our enthusiasm for spiritual things begins to look like a three-day old bouquet that you bought from that peddler standing beside the freeway ramp. You know what I mean? It just doesn't last. Why is that? Why is it that what it seems like we're ready to take on the world and then it just sort of implodes on itself? What causes that? Well, we want to try to answer that question this morning, and I think it'll probably be this morning and next week, but that's okay because I had a lot to do anyway, Bill. So this will, we'll just divide this into a two-parter, and I'll uh, send you the second part. How's that? But I want to look together with you this morning. You open your Bibles, if you would, to John 18. And as we look at this and try to answer this question, why is it that, we're, that we can be so up for God at one moment and then so deflated the next? That we, that we appear like you, at one moment that we're really walking... You know, tightly with Jesus Christ, and we're ready to take on the world. And then, a moment or two later, we're flat, like a tire in the parking lot with a nail hanging out of it. Just won't go. Why is that? What I want to do is—is look here in this section of John 18. We're going to begin in verse 12 and eventually find our way all the way to verse 27 and attempt to answer this question. And really what we have here is a contrast. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to examine a contrast that is given to us here. And the contrast is between Jesus Christ and Peter. Jesus and Peter. And how do they respond to the adversity that they are both facing? And as you well know, this is a familiar story. Their responses are diametrically opposed. So what is it? Why is it that Jesus responds in one way, Peter responds in another? And what can we learn from that process? I'll give you the answer even how before we begin. The answer is really on dependence. Who are you depending upon? That is the key. And so as we unpack this together what we're going to find is that Jesus and Peter are both depending upon something different. And it's it is what they're depending on, or should I say whom they are depending upon, that, that produces the, the result that they experience. Jesus responds to the adversity here in John 18, 12, and following with what I'll call serenity. And Peter responds with instability. Very simple contrast. Let me read for you, beginning in verse 12. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first. For he was father in law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. And Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought in Peter. The slave girl, therefore, who kept the door, said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was Cold and they were warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest therefore questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. Behold, these know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing by gave Jesus a blow, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Annas therefore sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They said, therefore, to him, "You are not also one of his disciples, are you?" He denied it and said, "I am not." One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of one of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, "Did I not see you in the garden with excuse me, with him?" Peter, therefore denied it again, and immediately a cock crowed. Two vastly Different responses in the face of tremendous adversity. What I want to do is, we're not going to work through this so much sequentially, although we will, but, I'm, but I want to work through it in, the, in terms of the two different responses. So I'm going to focus first on Jesus' response to the adversity, and we'll set that up, and then we'll look at Peter's response as a contrast, okay? So, beginning here in verses 12 through 14. Now, John's account of of the the Jewish trial of Jesus is different than the synoptic accounts. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, synoptic uh, means the same view, common view, gospel. Their account of the Jewish trial is a little bit different than John's account. John is the only one who speaks of this interview with Annas. The other synoptic writers pass it right over. And when you you bring them together in a harmony. When you harmonize John's account along with the other three, what you really come to understand is is that the Jewish trial actually had three phases. There was the initial interview or phase of the trial here that John talks about with Annas, and then the other Gospel writers give you the other two phases, which was one with Caiaphas and a few select members of the Sanhedrin and then the full one with the full Sanhedrin little bit later after that and so there were actually three phases to this trial now we call it a trial and that's speaking somewhat generously actually because as we will see this was not a trial in any true sense of the word and it was certainly illegal from beginning to end and we'll point some of that out to you so jesus is bound here verse 12 The Romans, he's knocked them over a little bit earlier by his spoken word, by the the unveiling of of his deity in some fashion through the speaking of the divine name of God. He's knocked them flat, but they've recovered and they've arrested him. And here it says they've bound him. And by the way, Mark tells us that at that time, the rest of the disciples, or all the disciples scattered, they all left him. They run away. Jesus has effectively protected them when he he focused the direction of the Roman and Jewish authorities on himself, said, Let the others go, and indeed they are able to go, and they run. So Jesus is all by himself. In the Romans, it says, they bind him, and you would think they would take him to their leaders off to Pilate or something like that, but it's it's not what they do. In fact, they don't even take him to the, the Jewish high priest Caiaphas. They take him to this man named Annas. They escort him to this man, Annas, and John tells us that Annas, verse 13, is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. So the question we ask is, why? Why do they take this dangerous prisoner, this one whom they were so concerned about that his arrest may cause a riot that they have to bring out a whole cohort of Roman legionnaires to to, uh, in, to arrest him and, and transport him off. Why did they take him to a man named Annas, father-in-law of the high priest? Well, I'm going to answer that question for you. Annas is a, is a fascinating character. And it really... Further dramatizes the contrast that's, that John wants us to see here in this section. Now, you know the Old Testament said the high priest, the appointment of the high priest, was an appointment for life. He was to be a son of Aaron, and it was a lifetime appointment to the high priesthood, much like our Supreme Court appointments are. But, Ever since Israel had become a subject people under the Babylonians, after the return from the captivity, the office of the high priest began to become more of a political office than a religious office. It still had religious function and responsibility, but it became very much a a political prize. Israel was under the the lordship or or the rule of Rome. And so Rome considered it their prerogative to appoint and depose high priests at will. Israel was a subject people. Rome was in charge and Rome would tell them who could be high priest and who could not be high priest. The office, as I said, had become so politicized that in order to become high priest, it it involved political backroom negotiations and frequently bribery. So the office of the high priest, that which was to be the one who, who would go before the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement and make atonement for the nation of Israel, the very core of their relationship to their God, had become a political prize. Historians also tell us that the family of the high priest by this time had become thoroughly corrupt. Thoroughly corrupt. Thoroughly corrupt. In fact, you could say that by this time, the family of the high priest, the high priestly family, had become like what we would know as a crime family. Like a mafia family. They were in business. And the business that they were in were the temple sacrificial system. And there was no crime boss, no... Godfather, more feared, more corrupt, more evil, and more ingenious than this man, Annas. He was the godfather of that time. And they made their fortune, and it was a considerable fortune, off the backs of the working people who would have to come to Jerusalem and make the prescribed sacrifices under the Mosaic Law. Now you remember that Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry and at the end of his public ministry, he did something that infuriated the religious establishment, the Sadducees. He went into the temple area, right? And he overturned the tables of the money changers and he he cast out those that were selling the sacrificial animals. And he said, you have turned my father's house into into a, a, a robber's den. And he drove them out in a tremendous righteous indignation. It began his public ministry. It ended his public ministry. And believe me, the crime family, the, the, the high priestly family never forgot the first instance, let alone the second. From that moment when Jesus declared war on them, they declared war on him. Now, as I, tell, I told you, Annas... The historians are uniform in their in their description of this man, how corrupt how evil, unscrupulous he was in fact the the Tables for the money changers, and, and the purpose of all of that is, is when you would come in from far away and the, and the pilgrims were required to come into Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire and make their sacrifices and pay their temple tax, when you came in, you would come in with currency from wherever the locale where you lived, the local currency you'd come in. But when you came in, you had to pay your temple tax in the temple shekel. And so your foreign money needed to be exchanged. Now, any of you have ever traveled abroad and know about money exchanging? you know that there are places where you get good deals and there are places where you get ripped off, right? Well, when you came into the temple area to exchange your foreign currency into the temple currency to make the required sacrificial payment, guess what? Annas owned the exchange tables. And his exchange rates were outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. And there was no place else to go. Beyond that, you would want to bring in your sacrifice. Now, say you lived in Galilee and you've been raising sheep and you have a pet sheep that you've raised, a small lamb, and it it meets the requirements of the law. At least you think it does in terms of its perfection. It's, It's a lack of blemish. And so you carefully transport this sheep down to Jerusalem that you might make the sacrifice, all in keeping with the Mosaic law. And you arrive at the temple and you present your lamb to the priests for their inspection to see if it meets qualifications. But guess what? Sorry, it doesn't add up. It's not good enough. But over here, if you'll just step over to this table here, we have sheep for sale that meet all of the requirements. Guess who owned the sheep selling tables, the bird selling tables, and on and on and on. You got it. Annas. The historians call it the bazaars of Annas. He had a lock on this with his family. It was a monopoly. And he became filthy rich in the process. And in fact, the Jewish Talmud itself pronounces a curse on the family of Annas and their, quote, serpent hissings. Close quote. So everybody knew they were being ripped off. and But there was nothing they could do about it. Now, Annas served as high priest from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15, and then he was deposed by the Roman provincial governor. But following him, five of his sons and one son-in-law successively were the high priests. I told you earlier, the way you became the high priest was that you would bribe the local Roman official. You would promise him a certain cut, of the action and then they would install you as high priest. If they thought you had become too powerful or you were trying to renegotiate the terms of the deal, then they would depose you and the office would go up for bid again. And But Annas, the godfather of the family, although he was not official high priest, don't miss this, was high priest. He was behind it all. So it was him first and then through his sons and his grandsons that he controlled the whole process. We're also introduced here, verse 13. He says he's the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, meaning that Caiaphas this was Caiaphas's turn. Also John tells us Caiaphas was the one verse 14 who would advise the Jews right that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Over in John 11, John tells us that uh, God put that prophecy in Caiaphas's mouth, wicked that he was. Caiaphas's meaning was, we're going to get rid of this pesky Galilean carpenter. It's better that he dies, innocent man that he is. Better that he dies than that the Romans come in here and they redo the temple system and our money business gets disrupted. So let's just get rid of this guy and things will be business as usual. Of course, God put the prophecy in the mouth of that high priest and... He was speaking about Christ dying in a redemptive way for the nation. Now, this Caiaphas, again, historians tell us, was every bit as wicked as his father-in-law, and you might expect such to be. Now, again, it's quite possible and indeed probable, I think, that Caiaphas and Annas shared the same palace. The same high priestly palace they would have just for different wings of the palace where they would live. And in the middle was a courtyard. That seems to account for the evidence best of Peter's movement during this time. Now back to that question. Why take Jesus to Annas? Well, I think the first part of the answer is probably obvious to you by now, right? Annas was the power behind it all. He was the driving force behind the arrest of Jesus in the first place. Although he was not official high priest, he was absolutely high priest emeritus and he was the brains and he was the brawn behind the whole operation. And so regardless of the legal technicalities, Jesus has got to face the Jewish authorities and the Jewish authorities begin with Annas. And so that's where he goes. Now beyond that, I see Annas wanting to get an eyeball-to-eyeball view of the guy. He's known Jesus by reputation. He's seen what's been going on with with what Jesus has done to to his money-making operations. I think he just wants to get the measure of the man. So he says, bring him here first. Let me look at him. Let me talk to him. Let me interview him. Perhaps in my and I'm, I'm putting words in his mouth, granted, but perhaps in my interview here, I will draw something out that we will use against him. Because, by the way, John tells us, right, they'd already decided that he's going to die. This is not a trial to see whether he's guilty. This is a trial to find a basis by which we can kill him because we've already decided that's what we're going to do. We're just looking for some means to paper it over in some legal way to get ahead and do what we want to do. So Annas is looking, he's fishing, he's, this is a grand jury inquisition, except it's got no legalities of a grand jury. Third reason, I suspect, for him to see Annas first is Caiaphas has to get the rest of the machinery in motion. They don't know exactly what time of the night they're going to arrest Jesus. They do know it is that night. They do know they have to assemble a certain amount of the Sanhedrin. And that takes time, right? There's no cell phones. There's no email. There's no landlines. It's all done by messengers. And so he needs to gather together at least a contingent of the Sanhedrin loyal to him and to where he's going. And so while Annas is is interviewing Jesus, Caiaphas is over here sending out his servants as runners to pull in representatives of the Sanhedrin so that they can have the more official trial. All that's going on. Now, let your eyes drop down to verse 19. The high priest, therefore, questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. John says just a, very briefly, it's a twofold inquiry, two prongs to the inquiry here. First, he quizzes him about his disciples He's asking Jesus about his disciples. Now, we know that he's not asking Jesus about how do I become one of your disciples. So he's got no interest in that. What he's interested in, I suspect, is the names of the disciples. How big is this organization? Again, if you put it in your, in your mind's eye of kind of a crime boss, and he sees Jesus' as competition, he brings him in here and he wants to know how big is your organization? How many followers do you really have? How difficult is it going to be to roll this thing up? I've got you, but what else is behind you? Maybe beyond that, he wants to know, how deep have you penetrated into the the high society of Judaism? We know there are some secret followers, right? There is Nicodemus, there is Joseph of Arimathea, both from the Sanhedrin. How else? How deep... Further than that has it gone. How many wealthy um, benefactors do you have? How extensive is this thing, Jesus? How strong are you? And Jesus doesn't answer him a word. He does not respond at all. He, He maintains perfect silence in his presence. He will not answer that question, but just with a with a calmness and a dignity, he just stands there and refuses to answer the question. He's asserting his rights as a prisoner. We'll talk about that a little bit this morning. He's also fulfilling his commitment to protect the disciples. If he won't disclose who they are, then they then they have a measure of, of autonomy and and. Um, Therefore, they will not be harassed by the hierarchy. And so he's, he's protecting the organization. He just won't answer the question. So Caiaphas moves quickly from that question, verse 19, about his disciples. And he, he turns to his teaching. He says, okay, essentially, if you, won't, if you won't tell me who they are, now I'm going to the second part of my inquiry. And that is that I, that I want to know about what you're teaching. And the reason I want to know about your doctrine, again, I'm not interested in it, in, in, in believing it. I don't want to become one of your disciples. What I am looking for is a reason to execute you. So, this, I am looking for heresy. Say anything that you say can and will be used against you. And so he's fishing. He's fishing. Again, Jesus is perfectly within his rights to answer, not answer this question. Jewish law gives him the right, and, and indeed enjoins upon him not to condemn himself. We uh, we have those same kind of legal projections today, don't we? Right? Don't we have a Fifth Amendment? Right? Don't people take the Fifth Amendment? So, so they don't say something to incriminate themselves. Jesus is asserting what is his Jewish right under the law. Not to say anything. Not to respond to this questioning. And so he doesn't respond to it directly. Notice how he does, though. Verses twenty twenty one: 21 What he does is he rebukes Annas for even asking the question. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. Behold, these know what I said. Jesus says, my teaching has been open before the nation. There is nothing secret. There are no secret heresies going on here. What I had to say, I said it openly. And if you want to know what I had to say, and you think I'm guilty of heresy, then produce your witnesses. Behold, they all heard what I said. Bring them forward. Bring out the witnesses. They know what I've said. Bring them forward. Let them testify to the heresy that I have spoken. Annas is bested. At that moment in time, he's got nothing left to say. His mouth has been stopped. The most powerful man politically in the nation of Israel has been stopped. His mouth has been closed. One of his flunkies, knowing that Jesus has gotten the best of him, reaches out and slaps Jesus across the face. Boom! Is that the way you talk to the high priest? How does Jesus answer that? Verse 23, he answers him. If I've spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? If I have said something outside of the law, what is it? Produce it. And if I haven't, now you beat me? A prisoner? Uncondemned? You have no witnesses, you have no basis, you can't produce anything, and now you're going to beat me? Caiaphas is bested, or excuse me, Annas is bested again. He's completely shut down. He's got nothing more to say. Jesus has turned it upside down. Anas has got nothing left to do, verse 24, but to turn him over to Caiaphas. And so that's what he does. Right? Verse 24, Annas therefore sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now don't think just because Annas passes out of the narrative that he passed out of reality. You can be absolutely assured that this man was behind all that went on the rest of the evening and into the next day. He was the power behind the high priesthood. And so he's going to send him over to Caiaphas because Caiaphas is the official high priest. He's attempted to to accomplish his purposes and Jesus has responded so calmly, so coolly, with such serenity in his presence that he's completely shut him down. So off he goes to Caiaphas. What we would call phase two of the trial. Phase 2. Now again, this is not a trial. This is, this is a condemnation. This is a fishing expedition. This is, this is looking for a reason to do what they already want to do. Annas has not been able to come up with anything by which they can, can make it stick on Christ. And so now it's over to Caiaphas. And Caiaphas has with him a, a few hand-picked members of the Sanhedrin. This is all still occurring in the dark of the night. And the other gospel writers tell us that witness after witness is produced and brought forward, and none of them can make a charge stick. They cannot agree among themselves. They just come up and they give contradictory testimony after contradictory testimony. It is going on for some period of time, maybe an hour or more. And Jesus is absolutely mute before them. He will not respond to any of their charges, He's just completely silent. finally Caiaphas produces two witnesses the other writers tell us he finally gets two witnesses that can at least agree on something and what they falsely claim is according to Mark 14:58 they say that Jesus said i will destroy this temple made with hands and in 3 days i will build another made without hands well that's not what he said but now they at least have two witnesses but even that is not enough to, to execute him on. They need something more than that. So Caiaphas now is at wit's end. He is desperate. He has got to get this man condemned and on his way to execution before the city awakes. Or he's going to have a riot on his hands, or at least that's what he thinks. And so he is desperate, and he, he turns to desperate measures, and what he does is he, he binds Jesus under an oath, and, and what he says directly is, Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? I adjure you under oath. And Jesus opens his mouth. Under oath? Before God? To tell the truth? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Jesus responds, Mark 14, 62. I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven he says i am the messiah i am the son of god and beyond that you will see me come in judgment of this whole mess well at that point caiaphas grabs his robes and right rips them in half in violation of the mosaic law he declares openly that jesus has blasphemed they've got what they want now they've got a charge they think that will stick He turns to the Sanhedrin, the, the, the members there that have been gathered, he says, what do you think? They say, absolutely, blasphemy. And they come up to him and they start slapping him and punching him, and they cover his eyes and they punch him and say, okay, prophet, tell us who was it that punched you. And they begin to abuse him and beat him up. And they drag off Christ to another room across the courtyard, and they lock him up, waiting for daylight to come when they will gather the full Sanhedrin and they will have a trial in the daylight and they will make the official charge. Beloved, this whole thing was illegal. Absolutely illegal from start to finish. It violated their own laws at every single turn. There was no desire for justice here. There was no desire for legitimate inquiry. It was only a way to figure out how to kill a man they've already decided to kill. So specifically, here it is, just a a list of some of the illegalities. Number one, capital trials have to be conducted during the daytime, not at night. And the reason they can't be conducted at night is because witnesses are generally unavailable at nighttime. So it has to be a daytime process. Number two, it has to be conducted in a public place, not in a private home. For the reason, again, is that it is hard to get witnesses together in a private home. You can't have some sort of a capital crime trial tucked away in somebody's backyard. Beyond that, it has to be properly announced, it can't be hastily arranged. There has to be time for the defendant to organize his defense, call his witnesses. In this particular trial, the whole presumption of innocence is done away with. There's no, there's no innocent till proven guilty here. It's bring the guilty party in and we're going to give him a re, you know, we're going to find a reason to kill him. Beyond that, they pressure Christ to testify against himself when he is guaranteed under law not to have to do that. Witnesses have to be on hand at the time the trial convenes. And there have to be witnesses available that, that, that can, can give evidence for why he is guilty. And these charges that were contradicted by one witness after another means that the whole case had fallen apart and he should have been set free. Beyond that, when a, verdict in a, capital, when a, a guilty verdict in a capital trial was reached, they have to wait a day carry out the sentence. They have to give time for the defense, the defendant to, to find any other witnesses that might come forward to prove his innocence. You can't condemn him the same day that you execute him. You have to give him time. So the whole thing is illegal from start to finish. It's a sham. He's been buffaloed. He's been railroaded. sense of righteous indignation should well up within you. He got rights. He had no rights. They had no interest in anything but killing him. And there standing before his vicious and malicious accusers whom he knows are out to kill him, Jesus just stands with the with this level of serenity, calmness, composure. And he puts them all to shame. Beloved, that's one way to respond. I wish we had time to go to the other. And I say here in my notes, Meanwhile, Peter's not doing so well. Meanwhile, Peter's not doing so well. We'll come back next week. We'll look at the contrast of how Peter responds under pressure. I think one thing that I do want to just leave you with as we walk out of here is, you know, we read these narratives. There's a great temptation to assume that, well, yeah, Jesus can do that because he was God. And we just throw it all onto his godness. We just say, well, he was was God in human flesh. and, And so he didn't walk on the same earth that we walked on. You know, he walked about 18 inches higher, just kind of free floating, right? He didn't suffer the same things that we suffer. The sense of injustice that we would feel. The the sense of being railroaded. The sense of, of saying, now wait a minute, this is not right. The sense of fear. All those emotions, beloved, it's not His Godness that snuffed them out. It was His incredible dependence upon the Spirit of God to walk and live as one submitted to God the Father. And that's where we can identify, for that's what we're called to do. Let's pray. Our Father, we all have a very strong sense of right and wrong, and particularly when it comes to ourselves. Our righteous indignation swells up within us at a drop of a hat when someone offends us. We want justice. We want even revenge. Those kind of emotions, they well up within us, our Father, so quickly, so easily. And they are so contrary to what we see here in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, Paul tells us in Romans 8 that we are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We are being made like Jesus Christ who Peter says when he was before his accusers, he opened not his mouth, but he was silent like a lamb going to the slaughter. And then Peter uses that example to speak of how we should live with one another in interpersonal relationship. Our Father, as we are vividly reminded this morning of just how silent Christ was, may you work in our hearts And by faith, enable us to to emulate that kind of self-control, that kind of humility, that kind of deference, even in the face of injustice. Trusting in you, Lord God, sovereign ruler of the universe, the one who balances the books not at the end of every day, but the entrance into eternity. Give us faith to live. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Each week we have folks available for you. They're over, they'll be here after service over by this lighted cross. If there are questions that you might have with regard to your relationship to God through Christ. Perhaps something said this morning that piques your interest or just general questions and you would come after service and those folks would be pleased to help you. They can either answer your questions or find someone who can. But don't leave this morning if you have something that's burning in your mind, okay? God bless you.